Come on in. Have a seat. And we'll jump in. Caleb, just make my, there we go. Come on in, 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 in. Come on back in, 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 in. As Ollie said, oh, is that good? I don't know. All right. As Ollie said, we're certainly welcome. Uh, Certainly glad that you're here. We welcome you here if you're new with us. uh, We hope that you enjoy your time with us here at Christ Central Church. Uh, If we haven't met before, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and uh, we're going to look at God's Word together. I get the privilege of opening God's Word with you and uh, seeking not only to understand it, but to apply it to our lives as well, right? Okay, there we go. Some are with me, some are in. So that's what we're going to do. So for the next few minutes, uh, we're going to look at God's Word together, and we want God's Spirit to use His Word to change us. That's what it's all about when we come to God's Word. We want to know more about who He is. We want to understand more about Him, but we also want God's Word to change us, right? It's my desire when I come on a Sunday morning to meet with God and to leave different than when I came in, right? We want to grow in our walk with God. We want to have more faith. We want to see more fruit of the Spirit alive in us. We want to be more transformed into the image of His Son. And that's why we come on a Sunday morning, is to give God worship and praise because He's due. And as we do that, and as we experience Him, as we come to His Word, the Bible tells us that we're changed as we see Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do. We took a bit of a diversion last week, uh, but we're back in 2 Corinthians. And so you can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll pray, and then we'll read God's Word together. So Father, we're so thankful for your presence here with us. We thank you for what you've already been speaking to us as we uh, have worshipped you and just uh, the idea that you're always with us, not just an idea, but a truth uh, that we can build our lives on, that your word says that you promise to never leave us or forsake us. And so it's so easily said, but so hard to grasp sometimes in difficult situations. But we just thank you again for reminding us this morning. And as we come to your word, we pray that you continue to speak. Uh, we pray that you continue to speak to us through your word, and we do want to be changed by it as your spirit works Through your word, we want to be changed, and so we ask that you would come, reveal yourself to us, uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning through your word. For your glory, we pray. Amen. All right, like I said, we took a one-week diversion from 2 Corinthians to look at Thanksgiving last week, Uh, but we're back this morning uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you are relatively new with us, I'll give you a little bit of of background before we read. Uh, So 2 Corinthians is a letter written by a guy named Paul to a church in Corinth, which is in Greece. Uh, And Corinth was a church that he planted and he built up and strengthened. He stayed with them uh, for a year uh, with another couple. And uh, they, they worked and built this church up. And then he moved on to do more apostolic ministry. When he left, uh, it didn't take very long for things to kind of go a bit 
sour, and they started to have some... They're excited about that. He planted Corinth. Um, things went a bit sour, and the relationship between them got a bit tense. They got upset about some things. Uh, they got upset about Paul changing his travel plans. Uh, they got... These other guys came in, Paul refers to them, hilariously refers to them later in 2 Corinthians as the super apostles, and they came in with their teaching, uh, which seems to be more about money and more about prestige and more about uh, anything other than what Paul was, which was weak and suffering and kind of small in their view. And so they kind of continued to drive that wedge between Paul and the Corinthian church. And so... Paul writes 2 Corinthians to try to help clear some things up and restore this relationship between the two. And so, uh, when he sits down to write 2 Corinthians to repair this broken relationship, it really uh, is one of the most uh, emotional of all of Paul's letters. He really opens himself up here, and we really get to peer into not just his ministry, but who he is and his life. So we've come through three chapters of 2 Corinthians, and last time we were here, we just looked at the first verse of chapter 4, where we talked about our need to take heart uh, because we view God's mercy towards us. That was a few weeks ago, looking at the first verse of chapter 4. So we'll read that again. We'll read the first seven verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. So it says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So Paul, in these first few verses, he sets out to kind of set some things straight about his ministry. Uh, He seems to kind of compare his ministry with that of the super apostles in Corinth Uh, He says he's not underhanded, he doesn't practice cunning, nor does he tamper with God's word to try to make it a better sell. He's basically saying when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to his apostolic ministry, he's not a con man. He's not like the the caricature of of the sleazy used car salesman. If there's any used car salesmen here, I apologize, but... Of, of, you know, doing all the tricks of the trade to sell you a lemon. Paul's saying, we don't practice those ways. We just give the gospel straight. We're not underhanded. We don't practice cunning. And we don't tamper with God's word. He isn't trying to make 
a quick sale. And it seems like the super apostles were all about money, they're all about the crowds, they're all about the popularity. And so Paul saw it back then, and we see the same thing still today. And so often, God's word is tampered with so that popularity is increased, so that controversy and discomfort are avoided. We see it when it comes to the, gro- to the cross, Jesus' death on the cross to take our sin, absorb God's wrath, is deemed too violent. A bloody cross isn't very marketable. And the wrath of a holy God is a bit hard to swallow. And so we tamper with God's word. Sophisticated, educated, enlightened people don't believe in things like a literal devil and a literal hell. So we just kind of present them as figures of speech that wasn't to be taken literally. And we tamper with God's word. And other verses that have to do mainly with money and sexuality, we find a bit just a too, too uncomfortable to deal with. And so we pretend that it's complicated or a bit hard to understand. And so we tamper with God's word. And it's all cunning. And Paul says no to it. He says we give the gospel straight. He's making a separation between his ministry and what's going on in Corinth. He goes on from there in verses 3 to 6 to give a glorious view of salvation. It's a view that's very different from much of how Christianity is presented today. It's much more majestic than someone saying, you know, I tried to live a pretty good life and then I heard about this Jesus fella, so I pray to repeat after me prayer and now I'm a Christian. It's much more majestic than that. What Paul shows us is that the world is divided into two groups. Those that see Jesus as glorious and those that are blinded from seeing his glory by the God of this world. That's different, isn't it? Listen to what he says in verse 4. 4 verse 4. He says, In their case, the God of this world that's the enemy, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's a sobering situation. Elsewhere, Paul tells Timothy that they are held captive by the devil, stuck in his trap. And so in our natural thinking, it seems like a hopeless situation. And so we need to see how amazing it is then in verse 6 that Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What looks like a hopeless situation, Jesus rescues us from by saying, Let there be light. And so it's a glorious view of our salvation. In the same way as God spoke in Genesis 1 and brought light and life out of darkness and chaos, God speaks and shines light into our heart so that we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so if you are a Christian this morning, what that means is at one point in your life, you were blinded by the God of this world 
from seeing Jesus as glorious. At some point in your life, maybe you were young, maybe you were old, wherever you were, at some point in your life, you were blinded from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. And at one point, God looked at your heart and said, let there be light. And the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shone into your heart. That's an amazing, amazing view of our salvation. Maybe you were expecting it, maybe it blindsided you, but at some point, God said, let there be light, and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ shone in your heart. That's a majestic description of our salvation. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so before I move on, I just have to point out, does that not show us yet again our great need to pray? Does that not show us yet again our great need to pray for those who don't yet know Jesus? Because our eloquence isn't going to do it, our logic isn't going to do it, our good persuasion isn't going to do it, your good deeds and your kindness are not going to do it. They're all good and helpful things but only God can look into your neighbor's heart. Only God can look into your coworker's heart. Only God can look into your child's heart, into your dad's heart, and say, let there be light, and there is light. Only God can do that. Your kindness and your talking to them about Christianity, those are all good things but they're not going to shine light into a person's heart so that they can see Jesus as glorious. And so, why are we not praying more for the lost and for our city? What on earth do we think James meant when he said, you have not because you ask not? Sometimes it, thinks, it feels like we think prayer is just the quick route, and that we could accomplish the same thing if we just tried hard enough and put a lot of effort into it. But instead, we'll just pray because God could do it quicker and easier. But that's not what Paul is showing us here. Only God can shine into a person's heart so that they can see Jesus as glorious. After showing what his ministry is and what it's not, what salvation is, then we come to verse 7, and that's our main focus for this morning. As I mentioned before, 2 Corinthians is filled with these, uh, we've called them the diamond verses that you just come across and you go, wow, what truth there. They just kind of pop out at you and uh, cause you to kind of sit up, both because of the beautiful way that they're written and the powerful truth that they contain. And both of these things are certainly true when we come to verse 7. It's a popular verse, and many of you 
uh, probably know it. Paul says, so he's, he's brought clarity to what his ministry is. He's brought clarity to what salvation and the gospel is. And then in verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's one of the more popular verses in the Bible, made popular by the great Christian band Jars of Clay, which Kevin and I were astounded to find out this week that Mark hadn't heard of. And we referenced the great 1995 hit Flood, uh, and Mark had never heard of it. And so uh, Kevin and I were quite concerned, mainly for his salvation. Um, and so Kevin immediately played it on his phone so that we could bring assurance to Mark. If I can't swim after 40 days. Many of you know it. Some of you don't, and I just sound ridiculous, but that's all right. Some of you are humming it in your head right now. Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's a striking image, isn't it? A treasure is something valuable. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the story of a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. So he sells everything that he owned. He sells it all so that he can buy the field and the treasure be his. It's a treasure after all. It's what great stories are written about, what great adventures are looking towards, what explorers look for. A treasure is magnificent, glorious, precious, valuable. When we think of a treasure, we probably think of a big old pile of shiny gold and silver, precious gems and jewels, you know, like crowns and golden cups and jewelry. It's a treasure. It's sparkling and glittering. It's a breathtaking, marvelous sight. A clay jar is baked dirt. A clay jar is baked hard dirt. It's ordinary, it's common, fragile, and in every sense of the word, unremarkable. In Paul's day, a clay pot was, a, was one of the most common everyday objects there were. It was like a dime a dozen sort of thing, was a clay pot. If Paul was writing today, then he might say, but we have this treasure in Tupperware to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have this treasure in a Ziploc bag to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's a low, unremarkable vessel. And inside, Paul says, is a treasure. Is a treasure. We get the idea. Paul says that God puts his treasure in a jar of clay. God does with a heavenly treasure what we would never do with an earthly treasure. Try to picture, you know, priceless jewels just being held in a little Tupperware dish. The Hope Diamond is recognized as the most valuable jewel in the world. It was once owned by King Louis XIV of France. It now sits in Washington's Museum of Natural History, and its value is $250 million. So just try to imagine, for some reason, the museum has an auction, and $250 million or more as people start bidding to get this big hope diamond. And I win, and I roll up 
on the stage and I pay my millions of dollars and then I just open up a Ziploc bag and I take <laughs> it and I plunk it down in, except it's not even Ziploc, it's from the dollar store, so it takes about five or ten minutes to get that, those ridges lined up. Maybe I'm the only one that struggles with that. And then you just forget it and you just kind of bend it over and, and off you go. It's unthinkable to think that. But what we would never dream of doing with earthly treasure, God does with his heavenly treasure. See, God has poured out his love in us. He's lavished his grace in us. His resurrection power is at work in us. He's put his spirit in us. He's given us various gifts in us, in us, in you and me. And in every one of those who have put their trust in him, he's done these things, his gospel and his gifts, his treasure in us. He's put treasure in a clay jar. If you haven't fully got the, the picture yet, the metaphor, you are a clay jar. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 4-7, as beautiful as it is and as popular as it is, Paul is calling you baked dirt. You are a clay jar. If Don Smith were here, he'd probably say, God has put his spirit in, a, in you bunch of crack pots. That's my Don Smith expression. That was... <laughs> terrible right never mind <laughs> he's put the extraordinary in ordinary vessels and see the super apostles the naysayers were looking at Paul and saying look how unimpressive he is he's not much he's suffered a lot in chapter 10 verse 10 of 2nd Corinthians they say that Paul his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account that's you know, for, loosely translated from the first century, that means he's ugly and he's boring to listen to, okay? That's what that means. He is ugly and boring. His face will make you cringe and his voice will put you to sleep. That's what they said of Paul. And from things we see in the Bible and a lot from tradition, uh, people think Paul was a short hunchback of a man who had deformity in his eyes. He was getting up in age, and from all his beatings and his torture, he was all scarred up. And so they said, he's not much to listen to. All he goes on about is Jesus and the cross, Jesus and the cross, Jesus and the cross. If you bring him into your church, that's all he's going to talk about. Jesus and the cross, Jesus and the cross. It's boring. It's dry. And then when you look up after you're asleep and you see his ugly mug, just don't bring him around. He's unimpressive. That was the accusation against Paul. And so they come at him and they attack him. And what's Paul's response? He doesn't try to prove them wrong by listing his credentials. He's just like, you're right, you're right. I am weak, I am nothing, but God is powerful and the gospel is everything. You want to co comment on my ordinariness, my weakness, my frail frailty, I'm, I willingly and happily admit that I'm nothing more than a clay pot that God has put his treasure inside. They accuse Paul, you're weak, you're unimpressive, you're not a good communicator, you're plain, you're ordinary, you're not clever. And he says, you're right, I'm just a pot, but I do have a treasure. 
God has put his treasure in this jar of clay. And that's what God does. We see it all through the Bible, God putting his treasure in jars of clay. I mean, just look at the disciples, the ragtag bunch that Jesus chose. Jesus chose them. Just step, step back, because you're all very familiar with it, but step back. Jesus chose them, right? It's not like they won a contest by their talents to become a disciple of Jesus, right? There wasn't like Israel's got disciples and they brought them all out and, the, and, and Jesus judged them and he picked the best ones. Jesus chose the disciples to be his disciples. Jesus chose them. Fishermen and tax collectors and uneducated, unsophisticated men. Clay pots and God turned the world upside down through them. Abraham, Moses, Rahab, David, Elijah, Mary, clay pots that God put his treasure in. One commentator said this, the New Testament was not written by the elite of Egypt. It was not written by the elite of Greece or Rome or even Israel. The greatest scholars in the world at that time were in Egypt. The most distinguished philosophers were at Athens. The most powerful leaders and movers of men were in Rome and the religious geniuses were in Israel's temple. And God never used any of them, none of them. He just used clay pots. He passed by Herodotus, the historian. He passed by Socrates, the philosopher. He passed by Hippocrates, the father of medicine. Plato, the philosopher. Aristotle, he passed by Euclid, the mathematician. Archimedes, the father of mechanics. Hipparchus, the astronomer. Cicero, the orator. Virgil, the poet. He passed them all. Why? He was looking to use clay pots. He was looking to use clay pots. God puts his treasure in jars of clay. God puts his treasure in jars of clay. What does this mean for us? Well, this verse and the truth that it contains, it really brings to light a, a real stronghold that's, that's very common in our Christian life and one that we're so prone to be caught in. And for this morning, I'll call it the ordinary obstacle. And you can put ordinary in quotation marks. It's the ordinary obstacle. It doesn't take very long after we put our faith in Jesus, after we become a Christian uh, and begin to live the Christian life, that the devil comes with accusations. Revelation calls him the accuser of the brethren. He loves to live up to that name. He comes with his accusations against you. And one of the first accusations he comes with is God can never use you. God can never use you. And so you've become a Christian. You've put your faith in Jesus. And it doesn't take very long when the enemy comes and says, God can never use you. He saved you, and you might be one of his children, but he can't, he can't use you. Many of us in this room can testify that this is true. We've begun following Jesus, and we undoubtedly we faced accusations of uselessness. We came to Christ and our hearts were filled with passion. We felt we had new dreams for what God could do through us that would give him glory 
life had a new purpose, we had a new passion, our day had new priorities, and then this accusation is kind of like a leech that sucks us dry. God can never use you. And Satan begins to point out others to us and show us everything that we are not. And so we begin to make comparisons and become very dissatisfied with ourselves. If we're old, we wish we were younger. If we're young, we wish we were older. If we're quiet, we wish we were loud. If we were loud, we wish we were quiet. And we just spend our whole time feeling so ordinary and trying so hard to be like the person next to us. But God doesn't want you to be like the person next to you. He wants you to be like Jesus. God doesn't want you to be like the person next to you. He wants you to be like Jesus. He knows very well that you're a jar of clay. He's very familiar with your weakness, and he's very familiar with your ordinariness. Because it's in your weak, ordinary clay jarness that he has put the treasure of his gospel and his gifts in. And so your ordinariness is not an obstacle to God using you. I'll say it again in case you were drifting a bit then. Your ordinariness is not an obstacle to God using you. Your ordinariness is not an obstacle for God to use you. No one is too common, too weak, too shy, too art inarticulate, too disabled to do what God wants you to do with the gifts that he has given you. Your ordinariness, your weakness is not a liability, it's an asset. Your ordinariness and your weakness is not a liability, it's an asset if you want God to get the glory out of what you do. It's an asset if you want God to get the glory out of what you feel he's leading you into. If you feel God's calling you into stuff and you have a passion to do things, but it's you that wants the glory, then your weakness is a liability. But if your desire is to do things for God so that he gets the glory, then your weakness becomes an asset in that because then you are a jar of clay that shows the treasure. God says, Paul says that they can see that the surpassing power doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. And so your weakness, your ordinariness becomes an asset. The weaknesses that we so often hide behind and see as a disqualification for us serving God is the very reason God chose you and wants to use you. So maybe this morning this is what you've been struggling with. You feel that God has given you certain gifts. You have a desire to use those gifts for his glory, but you're just paralyzed and confused because when you look at your life, all you see are weaknesses and ordinariness and deficiency. And you've been asking God, you know, God, why did you give me this gifts and the desire to see you glorified in this way and not take away this weakness in me? Why give me this desire and these gifts, but not give me the, not allow me to exercise them to the best of my ability. And God is saying through 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it's not about your ability, it's about my ability. That weakness is the very reason that I put those gifts 
in you because I put my treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs not to you, but to me. It's not about you exercising your gifts and following your desire to the best of your ability. It's not about your ability, it's about God's ability. Fanny Crosby was born in 1820 in New York, and at only two months old, she became quite sick, and the family doctor was away that week, so the family trusted the advice and help of a man who claimed to be a certified doctor, but was found out later to be a con man, a quack. He prescribed a, uh, a thing to go on her eyes made out of hot mustard for some reason. It's the 1800s, who knows. Uh, a few weeks later, her illness subsided, but the, uh, the lasting effects of that prescription by that fake doctor caused her to be completely blind at only two months old. Her, her dad died a few months later, and with her mom trying to support their whole family, Fanny was mostly raised by her Christian grandmother. As a child, she developed a love for poetry, and at age eight, she wrote her first poem. At age eight, oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world, contented, I will be. And while she enjoyed her poetry, she zealously memorized the Bible, memorizing five chapters a week. I'll just say that again in case you were drifting again. <laughs> memorizing five chapters a week. Even as a child, she could recite the Pentateuch, the Gospels, Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, interesting choice, and many Psalms, chapter and verse. At age 15, she was sent to, see her, to do her schooling at the New York Institute for the blind. While there, she began writing hymns, and she never stopped. She continued writing hymns for the next 70 years, right up until just before her 95th birthday. Fanny Crosby became one of the most published and popular hymn writers of all time. In her life, she wrote over 9,000 hymns, some of which have been sung all over the world, Blessed Assurance, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, Rescue the Perishing, and Jesus keep me near the cross. At one point in her life, a preacher said to Fanny, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. And Fanny Crosby responded at once, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was still born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that, I shall, ever, that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Fanny saw her weakness as an asset, not as an obstacle in her pursuit of God. And God used her. God used her. And God can use you. If you forget everything else, remember that. God can use you. And He wants to use you. Because He can use you, He wants to use you. He didn't put his presence and his gifts in you and then be like, oh, I thought that was a porcelain vase. My mistake. Uh, now my hand's too big to get it back out, so we'll just leave it in that clay jar for now and, and uh, it surely won't cause much harm. God is well aware of what he's done. 
putting his treasure in you, a jar of clay. He's well aware of your ordinariness. He's well aware of your weakness. It hasn't caught him off guard. It hasn't caught him off guard. So whatever God has put on your heart, whatever he's calling you to do, maybe it's a, maybe it's a complete shake-up that involves your work, it involves your family, it involves geography, whatever God's calling you to do. Maybe you've signed up for Kids Club in the spring, full of faith, now it's getting into August, and you're becoming increasingly aware of your ordinariness as the days approach. September 16th, Kids Club kicks off, and you're becoming very much aware of your weakness and your ordinariness. Maybe you relate to Fanny Crosby's story. For a while, you felt you know, stirred by God to write songs or poems, and you've been arguing with God, you know, how can I write worship songs? I don't even know how to play the piano. And that's okay. Fanny didn't write many, much of the music to her uh, hymns either. She married the most famous organist in New York, and he did it. So God's able to do great things. So God knows your weakness. He knows your deficiencies. He knows your ordinariness. So whatever it might be, wherever you are, you need to see that that ordinariness is not an obstacle for God using you. In many ways, when we look at our church, we're just a clay pot church, but God has put his treasure in us. So let's not hold back or make excuses. Let's all the more serve him and pursue him in the things that he's called us too. This is God's way. Why? Because when a treasure is put in a clay pot, the treasure gets the glory and God is to be glorified. And so many times we want Jesus to be glorified as long as we get a little glory as well. We're happy for Jesus to get the standing ovation, but we'd like an honorable mention at the end. But when God puts his treasure in a clay pot, it's him that gets the glory. When Nancy Hawkins brings a cake to our life group, nobody says, wow, look at that Tupperware container. <laughs> what kind of plastic is that? And look at those ridges on it. Let's just, let's just take a minute and just glory in the Tupperware dish. Nobody says that. We are all in awe of this treasure of a cake that has entered our house. And you know, Nancy, she's all like, well, you know, somebody mentioned blueberries last week, and I had 15 minutes after work, so I made a 15-layer blueberry cake with blueberry icing, right? And we glory in the cake. It's the cake that gets the attention. It's the cake that gets the focus. It's the cake that gets all the glory as it should and the Tupperware dish is just there to display the cake and to point the attention towards the cake. In the same way, Paul is saying, you are a jar of clay so that when people look at you and your life as you follow God, as you pursue God in the things that he's called you to, all the attention goes to God. All the attention goes to him because he is worthy of it. He's the treasure in the clay pot. You're the vessel 
You're the vessel that points the focus and the attention to him. The treasure gets the glory. And when we get this, when we serve God and use his gifts, seeing our weakness not as a liability, but as an asset, when we serve God in this way, we're making sure it's Jesus who gets the attention. Paul said in verse 5, our desire isn't to proclaim ourselves. Our desire is to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Our desire is to make his name great among the nations. Our desire is to make him famous. Our desire is to proclaim his name. Not Brent Smith, not Christ Central Church, not Keith Warrington, not Tim Bicknell, not Sam Bicknell, not Krista Rich. Those aren't the names we're called to proclaim. We're called to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And when we start viewing ourselves as clay pots holding a majestic treasure, then it's him who gets the glory and not us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So God can use you, not despite your weakness, but because of your weakness, God can use you. Let's pray. Father, that is the desire of our heart. Our desire is that you would get the glory. Our desire is that you would be famous. Our desire is that your name would be proclaimed. And so we just ask this morning that you would forgive us for the many times that we've uh, sought applause for ourselves, that we've sought glory for ourselves, uh, and attempted to steal glory away from you. We've wanted to be anything but a clay jar, uh, but we're so thankful, Father, that you alone get the glory. We pray, Father, that you'd forgive us for these uh, obstacles that we've set up, these flimsy excuses that have prevented us from following you and using the gifts that you've given us in various ways uh, so that your church could be strengthened, your kingdom could be built, that you could be glorified. We ask that you'd forgive us of those things, uh, that we've seen our ordinariness and our weakness as obstacles for you using us when in fact, as your word has showed us this morning, uh, they're assets that we have because then as we follow you, you get the glory. And so we pray uh, in all we do in this church, in Christ Central Church, uh, that it would be you who gets the glory. We pray that as you work in us and you move us, uh, that you would get much glory from this church as we not seek to proclaim the name of Christ Central Church or our own names, uh, as we seek to proclaim your name. Um, we pray, Father, that you'd get much glory through this church. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue to worship through communion this morning, so those who have been asked to serve can make their way up. Paul talked about us proclaiming the name of Jesus, and he says in 1 Corinthians 11 that one of the ways that we do that is by um, celebrating in communion together. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate that we have this treasure in us that was bought for us through the imperishable blood of Jesus Christ, that he sacrificed himself so that we could have life and know God's love in our lives. And so that's what we're going to do. So they're going to come. They're going to pass it out. Sometimes we've gotten up, but this morning we're going we're to pass it through to avoid congestion. And then I think, why don't we take it all together at the same time, okay? So maybe as they pass it out, play or sing, I don't know. If, if you're new with us and you're not sure what, what this is all about, this is, as I read, it's, it's a way that we remember what Jesus has done. Uh, so if you're not a part of Christ Central Church, uh, you're certainly welcome to partake with us. If you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian yet, uh, there's no need to leave or anything. You're welcome to stay. Uh, and then you can just uh, join us again in worship after communion. <laughs> 